0: Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Science Festival, day eight. Um, Hope you've used lots of events already and got lots lined up for the rest of the week until the end, um, Sunday. Um, Just a little bit of housekeeping before we get started. Um, Because we're fully booked tonight and expecting a few latecomers, would you mind um, shuffling in and using all available seating, particularly if you're on the ends, because it means they can pop in and not disturb people um, as much as possible. But thank you all very much for coming. Love to see such a great turnout. It's our pleasure this evening to welcome Matherna Yoganathan, who is a PhD student in the Department of Applied Mathematics and Theoretical Physics in the Quantum Information Group. Matherna is interested in understanding why quantum computers are more powerful than classical ones and what this tells us about quantum mechanics. She has a YouTube channel about quantum mechanics called Looking Glass Universe, so do check that out. Um, and it's our pleasure to welcome you to the festival. Would you please all give a a warm welcome to Midhana.
1: Can you hear me at the back? Yeah, okay. All right, so my name is Midhana, and yeah, I'm a PhD student studying quantum computing. When I tell people that, usually they say, I haven't heard of quantum computing. Please stop talking. Um, But sometimes, People have heard of it, because there's a huge amount of hype at the moment about quantum computing. So I assume that you're here because you've heard about quantum computing in some way. Um, can I get like a, a show of hands of how many people have like read an article about quantum computing? OK, that's, that's really impressive. Um, OK, so if you've read a few articles, you might have come across um, some in these categories. So the first one is these really enthusiastic ones. So this says, in case you can't see it, in case you can't see it, Google's quantum computing, um, sorry, Google's quantum computer is a hundred million times faster than your laptop. Okay, um, and then there's also this other type, which is quantum computers will never work. So you're wasting your time. Um, so this talk is basically going to ask the question. Uh, Is either of these statements true? And it's going to be a long, meandering talk to basically answer no to both. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So if we're going to talk about quantum computing, we better start with computing. Um, So a computer, when we think of a computer, we're usually thinking of like our desktop computer or our laptop computer. But remember, also, phones are computers, and um, tablets are computers these days as well, and sometimes even your watches. So all of the things that we usually think of as computing, and all of the amazing things that you might have heard of, like AI and machine learning, all of that, we're going to clump together in this talk and call classical computing. I kind of think that the term classical computing sounds a little bit derogatory, because when I think of classical, I'm usually thinking of like Beethoven or Newtonian mechanics. But that's what we're going to call computers. Okay, so I want to tell you about what what computers actually do. But I think the best way to do this is to get you guys to give it a go yourself. So I'm going to try and get you to do something that a computer would do. So computers, what they really do is they solve problems. Here's the kind of problem that they might solve. So the task is square this number. I'm gonna show you a number now. And you guys are going to try and square it as quickly as, as you can. And when you have the answer, I want you to call out. And so for this, you can use uh, your phone calculator if you want. Um, You can use a pen and paper if you're old fashioned. Or if you're very old fashioned, you can use your brain. It's up to you. Um, So yeah, if you want to get out your, your phones, be ready. Feel free to. Well, it looks like a lot of you really trust your own brain power, so that's good. <laughs> okay, so this is the first number. 16. Great, good. All right, next number 225. That's pretty good. <laughs> Everyone just said no. <laughs> um, wow. God, okay. Um, uh, I, don't, I don't know, they, they were saying it. <laughs> I'm not a computer. Um, okay, and so last one. <laughs> Big. <laughs> I don't know where that came from, but that sounds good. Okay, <laughs> great. Um, okay, so this problem is not so hard, especially if you have a calculator with you, you just need to type in... Um, the number. So, um, what I'm going to like explain now is what an algorithm is, and basically all it is is it's a method for solving a type of problem. So the type of problem in this instance was squaring a number. The actual problem is exactly which number you need to square, and the algorithm is a method that will solve all the problems in that class. And so our algorithm was really simple, well, my personal algorithm is really simple, which is just get your calculator, type in that number, square it. That's it. But here's a slightly harder problem. So I'm going to get you to do this one as well. Factor this number. So what I mean by this is if I had the number 24, you would find the prime factors of this number. So that would be 2, 3, and 4 in this case, OK? you can also use your, your uh, phones for this one as well, but please don't use the internet and just type in what is the prime factors of, and then the number, because that will work and that will be very fast, but that's gonna defeat the purpose. Um, okay, so you ready? Um, Okay, that's pretty hard, and then what about this one? (laughs) Basically impossible, right? So what would have been your factoring algorithm? My factoring algorithm is very naive. It goes, just guess some prime numbers, and then check if they're the right number. Like check by dividing the prime number by the original number, see if it's a whole number. If so, it's a factor, otherwise just keep going. And because I don't really know the prime numbers, and actually we don't have an algorithm for producing prime numbers, I kind of actually have to check a whole bunch of other numbers as well to check if they're factors. So this is super inefficient, especially you can see as the um, problem gets bigger and bigger, there's way more numbers that you have to check. (coughs) So which problem was harder? Factoring. But why? How can we make this intuition that clearly factoring is harder than squaring into something rigorous? So what we're going to do for that is, well, okay, the the intuition comes from the fact that there was no good algorithm to solve it, but we don't know what a good algorithm is. Like what, how should we define an algorithm as good and bad? And then also the other problem is, well, Maybe there was a better way to do factoring, right? I mean, we we spent about two seconds thinking of a factoring algorithm. Maybe there is a better way if you spend a little bit longer. For the second point, at least, um, I can say that there are better ways, but not much better. So, do you know? Does anyone know why people would be interested in factoring numbers? Uh, that's right. Okay, great. So. A lot of the encryption that you currently use, so like when you put your credit card details into um, a website and you send them off, they're they're being protected by an encryption scheme called RSA. And RSA can be broken if you can factor numbers. And so as you can imagine, a lot of people have put a lot of effort into factoring numbers and they haven't found an efficient algorithm. And so this gives us some reason to believe that there isn't a good algorithm since people have been trying very hard. But, okay, let's try and get this intuition about what a good algorithm is first. Okay, so it's to do with the size of the problem. So these were the numbers that came, um, that we had in the squaring problem. And n represents the number of digits, right? And so the number of digits kind of represents how big is this problem? And what we, um, the, the relevant question then is, how much time does the algorithm take as n gets bigger, right? Because um, if you remember, for the factoring algorithm versus the squaring one, you guys were very, very quick at figuring out the, the answers for the first two numbers for factoring. In fact, even quicker than for squaring, right? And yet, factoring is clearly harder. So what we should care about is what happens as n gets big. So here's a graph. And on it, you can see that Um, that squaring as you increase the size of the problem it takes a little bit longer but not so much longer each time right and so the amount that it that it takes uh, goes as n squared you can prove that that's because your calculator takes slightly longer with slightly bigger numbers but on the other hand with factoring even though right at the start factoring is probably a little bit easier than um, than squaring very quickly, it just goes sky, skywards, and it takes a long time to factor. And so this is, um, you can also show that like all the algorithms that have currently been uh, invented for factoring are all exponential. So they all look like 10 to the power of something. So we're going to call an algorithm good if it's a polynomial, Um, if like the time that it takes is polynomial in the size of the problem, And we're gonna call it bad if it's exponential. If you don't really understand what the difference between a polynomial and exponential is, that's not super crucial. The point is that with an exponential, as you increase the size of the problem, suddenly it gets way, way harder. Whereas with a polynomial, it only gets a little bit harder. And that's kind of the point. Okay, so imagine this is the class of all possible problems and we have this small egg here, which represents the easy problems. So we've already seen that squaring definitely is one of the easy problems. But factoring, we think, is one of the hard problems. So it's not in the easy, in the easy sphere. But we don't know for sure. We just think so. Um, there are some other problems that we have much stronger be- reasons to believe are hard. So you might have heard of some of them. Like traveling salesman, for example, is very famous. Um, Okay. Now, this is what quantum computers do. A quantum computer is not... uh, Oh, sorry. Sorry, I should go back. Um, Okay. So, there are some other easy problems. So, the kind of things your computers usually do. So, browsing the internet, uh, rendering video game graphics, those things are theoretically easy problems. So, you might be complaining that, like, your you know, laptop takes a long time to render a video game, but actually the reason that it takes a long time is not because the algorithm is a bad algorithm, but because N is very big. The size of the problem is big, and that's the issue. But in theory, they are easy problems. But what quantum computers do is that they make some problems that were hard for a classical computer into easy problems for a quantum computer. So, in other words, the problem, if you ran it on a quantum computer, would only take polynomial time to solve. So, factoring can be solved in polynomial time on a quantum computer. This was a big result. Um, and people were really, really surprised about this because they didn't expect that there would be any difference between a classical computer and a quantum computer in terms of what problems they can actually solve. So, this was really, really surprising. But, just wanna, if there's one thing I want you to remember from this talk, this is it. Um, A quantum computer is not a faster version of a classical computer. In fact, for most of the um, algorithms, so the ones that are inside of the easy problems for classical computers, a quantum computer does not make them faster. So in particular, a quantum computer is not going to render your video games faster. I'm sorry. What it does is it can make some problems that were hard into easy problems. But you might be thinking factoring is not that useful unless you wanna break your encryption. Is there any problems that we care about that are easy for a quantum computer? So are there any useful problems? Um, So we'll get to that. Uh, But first I have to explain quantum computing in uh, X number of minutes where X is yet to be determined. So usually, a quantum computing talk kind of goes like this. Uh, we start talking about qubits, and we say that you know with a normal computer, you have a bit. A bit can be either a 0 or a 1. But qubits are magical, because you can have all the possible in-between states, which is a statement that has about zero content. Um, I can understand why people usually do this, because they, uh, they want to go on and explain all the other cool things about quantum computers, and they don't want to spend a lot of time explaining the nitty gritty of it. But I have you guys here for an hour, so we're going to learn quantum computing properly, um, which means we're first going to learn uh, quantum mechanics properly. <laughs> so this should be fun. OK. We're going to start off with the double-slit experiment. Um, how many people have heard of the double-slit experiment? Awesome. I didn't expect any less. Um, great. And how many people have heard of the wave-particle duality explanation of the, the double-slit experiment? Excellent. OK, so this is not how I'm going to explain this experiment. Uh, the reason is because, uh, because it's wrong. Um, it's completely wrong. And uh, the reason why people explain it that way Is because when people were first doing quantum experiments at the turn of the previous century uh, they had all these like semi-classical ideas in their heads like about waves and about particles and then they were doing these experiments like the double slit one and they were coming up with really weird results and they wanted to try and fit what they were seeing with what they knew and so they came up with the wave particle duality and it kind of works and so they were happy with it But after about 20 years of working on the maths, they realized that there was a much, much better way to explain quantum mechanics and is not the wave particle duality. And yet uh, physicists these days still talk about the wave particle duality to the public. And the reason is not because they believe it, because I'm sure they all know how to do quantum mechanics properly, it's because Uh, With the wave-particle duality, you kind of end up feeling like you've understood it, right? Like, you see that explanation, and it seems like, yeah, that that sounds right. Okay, cool, I've understood quantum mechanics. And so, uh, it's an easy explanation to get away with. But we're not going to do that. So, this should be confusing, and I hope that you guys will ask me questions and interrupt me. So, okay. In case you haven't seen the setup, which was basically no one, but anyway. um, In case you haven't seen the setup... It goes like this. You have some sort of particle and you have, this is a bird's eye view, and you have a a wall with two doors in it. And you're gonna throw the particle towards the wall. If the particle hits the wall, um, then we forget about it. But if it happens to get through, then we, that was very exciting. That's the first time I've done a PowerPoint animation. (laughs) Anyway, so, okay, if it gets through, then we want to know where it ends up. So we're basically just going to keep doing this experiment loads and loads of times, see where it goes. But we're not going to make any assumptions. So in particular, we're not going to assume that particles go in straight lines or anything like that. Instead, we're going to do the experiment and get all of our conclusions straight from experiment and just from logic. So we'll start with the simpler experiment. The simpler experiment is one where we just close one of the doors. So we call this the single slit experiment. OK, and now we're going to pretend to do the experiment. So let's do it. All right, the first particle ends up here. Do it a few more times. Cool. OK, so that's what we ended up with. Uh, Hopefully not particularly surprising. And then, of course, if we did it with the other door open instead, we would get the particles in another lump but sort of shifted upwards. OK, so so far, no surprises. But let's summarize what we've um, just learned. So I'm going to call the state of the particle that went through the first slit this thing. It's just just a way to represent the state. It doesn't mean anything particularly special. But OK, so if we have a particle that went through the first door which we know, we know for sure it went through the first door because the second door's closed. So if we have a particle that went through the first door and we measure it at the wall, the result we get is this. And similarly, if we did the other experiment, the particle goes through the second door, the result is that. All right. Now, here's a question, and it's not a trick question. So what if... I just don't know which door it went through, but I know for sure it went through one of the doors, and then I measure it at the wall, what outcome do you think I should get? No, it's not a trick question. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, So, okay, let's not think of it about, let's not think of it as two slits are open, but rather, We know for sure that it went through one door or it went through the other door, but for some reason you just weren't looking at which one it went through. Um, And so uh, you only measure what happens at the wall. And you do this many times, and each time the door, like either this door is open or that door is open. Yeah, Yeah. Great. awesome, okay, great. So that's exactly what we should get. And like this is, not something that we're getting um, because we're assuming some theoretical model like classical trajectories or anything like that. We're getting this just from like getting this experimental data and then using logic and r- arriving at this conclusion. So there should be no reason that this conclusion is wrong. Okay, but of course we'll do the double-slit experiment and you know what's gonna happen. So the double-slit experiment we have both doors open and if we assume that the particle goes through one of the doors um, but we don't know which one, then we should end up with the prediction we just said. And yet, of course, we don't. We end up with something completely different. So since this prediction was completely airtight, the logic behind it was airtight, we have to conclude that the state that we started off with was not this one. We didn't have the state where the particle either went through one of the doors or the other one. It has to be another state. So it was at this point, um, quantum physicists had uh, an epiphany and they decided we're not going to worry about what the particle is actually doing. What we're going to do is we're going to write this new type of state and Uh, This new type of state is just, instead of the or, we're going to put a plus, right? And we're going to call it a superposition. So, this state is now, um, has like both parts, uh, both possibilities, um, like in the state, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's doing one, so that doesn't necessarily mean it's doing both of them. All right. The reason why they, they wanted to do this is because if both of the possibilities are in the state, then those two possibilities can interact with each other in a way that we call interference. And the interference is what causes this interference pattern. All right, so if you have heard the wave-particle duality explanation of this experiment, you're probably rolling your eyes at how carefully I'm trying to say it isn't doing both things at once. Because That explanation seems really natural, right? So it seems really natural to say what's actually happening is the particle physically splits up into two. The two pieces go through one door each. And then uh, how that story goes is that those pieces smear out into waves, so sort of like this, right? OK, I'm going to explain why this can't possibly be true. So when in the double slit experiment, if we were just going to send one particle through, what would this theory predict happens? Yeah, right. So exactly, like, it, it would predict like, that we end up with, um, because, the, because it becomes a wave that kind of spreads out, then it must touch the wall at several places. And so it's going to end up like being smeared along the wall, right? But that isn't what we see. If we put one particle into the double slit experiment, we only see one particle come out the other end, right? And so it's not possible that it was a wave beforehand. Although there is this like other tricky version of the uh, wave particle duality that people talk about to try and get around this which is that when uh, it is a wave, but when you measure it at this, this uh, final wall, it collects up all of its mass and just becomes a particle again, right? Can anyone tell me what could be wrong with that explanation? Yeah, that's definitely one very good point. Anything else? Exactly. It takes energy to move mass. You can't just instantly move mass. So you can't do it faster than the speed of light, but even if you were doing it slowly, it takes energy. Where's that energy coming from? Nowhere. So it's not possible. Still, it is really, really tempting to, when we see this state, say that it's because um, the particle really has ripped into two and is going through both of the slits and is doing both of the possibilities. Even if we don't have the wave story, this is still not going to work. So, imagine these. uh, So, the the usual story is that, like, okay, now you've got these two parts, they can interact with each other, go off and go to some other crazy locations, and then that's why you end up with a really weird pattern. But what's wrong with that? Yes. Yeah, exactly. So that's one very good point. Like, splitting particles is not trivial. Like, for example, I could have done this with an atom. Do you think that the atom gets split into two? <laughs> like, that's not happening. Um, any other points? So another like, uh, reason why this can't happen is a very, very similar one to the previous. And that is that if you put in one particle, you expect one dot on the wall, not two half dots. Right? So this is not happening. OK. I would really like some objections, because I feel like uh, a lot of people believe this story, and I've just told you it's not true. So what do you guys think? So i <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs> OK. So if, if everyone's happy with that, then we can go on. OK. Cool. All right. Um, yeah. So um, then there's this like, other variation of this story, which is that you decide to measure which door uh, it goes through, right? Because like, it's really infuriating to say that it's not going through one of the doors, right? Because we could just measure it and then see it going through one of the doors. So I'm sure most of you have heard of what happens when you do this. Is that fair? Okay, yeah, all right. So. This is what happens. We do this measurement. This little light tells us that the particle definitely went through that door, which means that this this is wrong, right? That it really is going through one door. Um, But of course the problem is if we keep doing this and we look at the pattern that builds up, we eventually get the two lumps. So it's not the right pattern anymore. So it's as if quantum mechanics realises that we're trying to catch it out. (laughs) And so it changes its behavior. Okay, but how do we actually explain this in quantum mechanics properly with the maths, rather than just saying quantum mechanics is sneaky? So how we deal with it is by saying that this is the original state before you measure. But when you get that the outcome is the first slit, what it does is it collapses the state. And now the state really is just going through, just doing one thing. And we know that a particle that is, that is just going through the top door um, ends up in a clump there. So this result is consistent with the state collapsing. Okay. Uh, yeah, OK. So one last thing about the double slit experiment. Why doesn't the double slit experiment work if we used bigger particles? Why couldn't I use an apple and get an interference pattern? Let's see, this is the pattern that we actually end up with. Why is that? Why don't we get an interference pattern for an apple? What's the difference between an apple and like an atom? <laughs> Great, I'm glad you said that. <laughs> um, no, it's it's something else. There's another reason do no, no. Does anyone want to venture a guess? Yeah? We can see apples. Very good. Very good. Exactly. Right. So we're actually doing measurements, right? If I, if I was to stand here and throw apples towards those two doors, you guys would be able to see which door it went through. So you are doing a measurement of which, which slit it's going through. And so we know that that collapses the wave function to this pattern. But all right. What if all of you just closed your eyes? What then? Does it end up in an interference pattern?
0: God is watching. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. That's a good one.
1: (laughs) God's always watching. Um, Yeah. But okay. Is there anyone else watching? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Excellent. So if I threw the apple and it went this way, it knocks all this air in the way, right? And so that air, now if you were able to exactly tell the positions of all the particles of air in this room, you would be able to very easily tell that this is the way that the particle went. And so it's not that anyone is actually doing that measurement, but the information has leaked out into the world. So if you wanted to later on go back and collect that information, you could, and you could figure out which way the apple went. So that's one, one thing, the, the air. But then there's also light. So light is very similar. Like You can imagine like all this light hitting the apple is basically taking a photo. And if you were able to collect all those photons up, you would be able to see the, the apple go through the door. So there are all these measurements happening all the time. And that's why even though quantum mechanics is the theory of physics that explains everything, except gravity, um, We don't really see it in real life Um, and that's just because there are measurements happening all the time which destroy the the wave function destroy the superposition and so we don't see all the strange effects okay so to summarize that um yeah yeah okay so the reason why we usually say quantum mechanics is the physics of small things is not because it's the physics of small things, but because small things are much more likely to dodge being measured. So if you imagine an electron, it's much less likely to be hit by air or to be hit by photons. And yet, when it is hit by air or photons, then it does get measured, and the quantum effects go away. All right. So I'm going to summarize all of quantum mechanics that we've learned so far. what we've learned so far is that if we just had one of the options happening, then we might get these, well, we will get these outcomes. But if we have what quantum mechanics calls a superposition of the options, we get a completely different outcome. That outcome is not just the sum of the previous two. And so that's what we're going to call interference. But if you decide to, instead of measuring the wall, you decide to measure the act- of which state it actually is in, then it collapses the state randomly to one of the two options. And then if you try and measure at the wall, you'll get the, the outcome according to that option. Right. So it's very important that there are two different types of measurements going on here. right? So this measure at the wall doesn't tell you which slit it went through. And it's because of the fact that it doesn't tell you that information that quantum mechanics is allowed to keep having a particle that's like in a superposition of those two options. But as soon as you try and figure out which option it is, then it collapses. OK, yeah? Is there a known reason why that happened? Um. Yeah, so that, this is a really, really active research area. And in fact, this problem is called the measurement problem and has been the biggest philosophical issue in quantum mechanics uh, since like the 1920s. So yeah, great question. Um, in my opinion, there is like, a pretty elegant solution, but that's a little bit controversial. Um, It's called decoherence and you might have heard of like many worlds, so I I believe in the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics, that's very, very unpopular, but um, yeah. If if you believe in another interpretation, no, it's not solved. (laughs) Okay, do I have any other questions, I'm about to move on from quantum mechanics. Great really question. Good. Yeah, this is a really good question. Um, so the the it depends. It depends on the strength of the electric field. Um, if if the difference is very high, so like the the difference um, in the electric field for the, el- the electron going through the top slit is very different from the um, the bottom slit, then what you could do afterwards is measure. The electric forces figure out which way it went. But if it's very, very if it's a very subtle difference, then you you can't do perfect measurements of the electric field. And this imperfect one may not be able to completely distinguish which slit it went through, and then you still get some interference. So that's, yeah. yeah, that's a great question. Okay. Any other questions? Yeah.
0: So the the level I have. Right, is okay. Is that relevant or does it really all collapse down into, mm. you might as well just talk yeah. about having two
1: slits. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so yeah, you can absolutely do this experiment with as many slits as you want, any kinds of arrangements that you want, and the interference pattern that you get is different. Um, but the reason why people tend to just talk about the double slit experiment is because all the fundamental quantum features are there. You like still get this exact same thing where um, if you considered... The uh, particle just going through each one of the individual slits, and then you add it up. What should be the pattern? That won't end up being the right one because of interference. So, that like fundamental feature is is still exactly the same, but the interference pattern does look. Different. Sorry, uh,
0: could you elaborate so, a little bit more? Uh, we're thinking about the entanglement of the mm-hmm. um, two tops
1: and the two bottoms. The main two states yeah. should be entangled in that um, framing of a constant
0: physics problem. Uh, yeah. um, what, what means that we don't consider the state of the laboratory,
1: the state of the. Poetry, the, state of the uh, excellent. Yeah. Right. That you can see the yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, So we are assuming in this experiment that it's perfectly isolated from the environment. This is, of course, not true, and if we were going to consider things like uh, a stray photon coming from the lab and hitting our our particle, um, then that photon becomes entangled with our particle, or another way to think of it in the uh, many worlds interpretation is it measures the particle and then that collapses the particle and so you no longer get this effect. And so it's only in the idealized situation where there is no other particles affecting our one that we can get these results. So that's why we're assuming it. Hmm. But light is an electromagnetic phenomenon
0: and so any magnetic or electric force would be included
1: when you're thinking about the passage of light in the system. Yeah, that's a great question. So all the only thing that matters is if the um, interacting object would act differently if the particle was going through slit 1 or if it, was going, um, if it would act differently if it was going through slit 2. If it would act the same in both cases, then we can um, assume that it, like, we, we can do an approximation where it looks exactly the same as if it wasn't there at all.
0: Would, um, the air from the room and the lights
1: off change the pattern yeah. the apple? Yeah, exactly. Um, you would have to still be wary of, like, all kinds of other things. So, for example, um, uh, cosmic radiation. Like, you wouldn't want that to be hitting your apple. And, like, you, you'd have to completely isolate it. But, yeah, in theory, like, if you could completely isolate your apple, then you should get an interference pattern. Yeah, <laughs> um, great. <laughs> so, uh, similarly with the, the very st- strong electric fields question, um, it like it only makes a difference if you can't, like if you can, by looking at the gravitational force tell which way the uh, particle went. If you can't tell, then it's completely fine. But if you can tell, which you in theory should always be able to, then it depends on how much you can tell, like how reliably can you measure the gravitational field. And figure out which way the electron or particle went. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Okay. Good. All right. So, um, okay. Very, very, very quickly. Uh, So these are the three rules of quantum mechanics that I want you to remember. Um, So the the state is the state of all objects. So even apples is a superposition of all possibilities, right? But then if you measure which one it is, it collapses to one of those randomly. And finally, if instead of collapsing the wave function, you decide to measure something else, so you don't find out which one it was, but you would measure something else instead, the result you get is uh, not the one you would expect if there wasn't this, this superposition. So this is called interference.